Welcome again to Downtown Presbyterian Church. My name is Jake Patton, and I'm one of the pastors here, and that was Adam Radcliffe on drums, leading us in the worship service, the liturgy this morning. It always feels like we're introducing a band when we say that in the mornings. Um, and if you're visiting with us this morning, maybe this is your first time in a church or just your first time in this church, regardless, uh, we're really glad you're here, and we want to say to you, uh, you're most welcome, and we'd love to meet you after the service. So. Uh, please don't run off. Um, we're continuing our study this morning in the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bible, let's open there together to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 22 and read through chapter 4, verse 1. Just a few selection of verses. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You'll find the text printed in your bulletin. So as we're getting settled and finding our place in the text... Uh, Let's play a game. The game is called Name That Company. And what I'm going to explain to you this morning are benefits that employees of this company receive. And your job is to try to guess which company is it, okay? So here are the benefits. If you're an employee of this company, you get three meals a day. That means breakfast, lunch, dinner, providing in this company's dining hall. You get those three meals a day for free pretty good perk. In addition to that, daily, each employee gets two pints of beer. Yeah, a couple of heads lifted up on that one. <laughs> and if you didn't want one or both pints, you could trade those in at the co-op store at this facility and trade them in for, for goods or other needs you might have. Um, children of employees got dinner free once a week in the dining hall. Uh, this company even has a medical clinic on site Uh, for employees, for their spouses, and for their children at no cost. It's entirely free. And more recently, this company had to close down a plant and as a part of a severance package for these 140 newly unemployed workers. Here's what they got in their severance package. Each one, each individual, got 14 bottles of beer per week, per week, for 10 years. Lump sum of cash, free health care for their family, and scholarships for their children and education. They're not employees anymore. These are people that were just let go. And so your your first question is obviously, are they taking applications? (laughs) Who is this company? Who is this business? If you're thinking Chick-fil-A or Google, you are wrong. This is the Guinness Brewing Company. And it was founded by Arthur Guinness, a Christian. He brewed his first beer in 1759. And what makes these policies and these benefits even more extravagant is that some of these policies are almost 200 years old. These aren't modern. These aren't new. These are old policies that he enacted at his company. And so the question for us is, what could drive someone like that? What would drive an employer to create an environment a culture of generosity, a culture of, that doesn't sound like work. That sounds like life, doesn't it? We would all love to work for someone in some situation like that. What would drive someone to create an environment and a culture like that within a workplace? There's really only one thing, and we're going to look at it. This is Colossians chapter 3, picking up in verse 22 and reading through chapter 4, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Bond servants, 
Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our great Father, by your very words, the heavens were made and were brought about and From the breath of your mouth, all the hosts of heaven appeared and were created. So again, this morning, would you give us your most mighty and powerful word? Would you breathe upon us? Would you whisper again into our ears so that we might truly love you? We might love our neighbor, might love ourselves and our earth. And we ask this all in the matchless name of Christ, our brother. Amen. Honestly, I can't remember the last 3D movie I saw, but I'll never forget the first one I ever saw. It was in elementary school. It was the old black and white film, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Remember that one? And I remember as a kid being amazed at how one little tiny piece of technology, just those, those lenses and those glasses that you put on your face, could take what was jumbled, what was discord, what was chaos kind of up on the screen, and with a small piece of technology it turned it into a living image with depth as if the movie was playing out right in front of you. Remember the first time you saw one, you did that thing where you're you're going between the glasses and the screen and then you kind of do the the reaching out as if it's right there in front of you, make sure nobody's looking. Remember doing that? Okay, me neither. (laughs) Just one little thing could turn chaos and discord into harmony and beauty. We're talking about work this morning, and on one hand, when we, when we understand work as God created it, work is very, very important to our lives. It's God-given. It's a good thing. And whether we're students in school, that is considered your work, or you're a professional, even if you're retired, you're still working on things, and you're still working to a degree. Work takes up a major part of our life. So we have this, this idea and this concept of work, but over here what we also have is this command this admonition from God in the scriptures to make all of your life worshipful. And the question is, is how do we do our work and how do we take this command to make all of life worshipful and how do they overlap? Does your work feel like worship? Does your work feel like a product of your relationship with God? For most of us, this is not protocol. This is not how we're born. This is not how we jump into our work. It doesn't feel that way. It feels like chaos. Sometimes work feels for us like we're watching a 3D movie without the glasses. It's just, there's just no harmony. I've got my work over here and then I've got my spiritual life over here. There's no overlap. But that's not the way God designed it. Work was meant to be worshipful. And for it to be, Paul needs to reorient us in three ways this morning. So if you're keeping notes, here's my three points. He needs to reorient our work He needs to reorient our leadership and then reorient our audience. Reorient our work, leadership, and audience. Well, first, 
our work. Let's get our feet underneath us. Two things to introduce this point. The first one is, I'm going to be using this word slave um, because that's what the word is in in the Greek here in this passage uh, quite a bit this morning. But I'm also using it synonymously with the word bondservant or servant or employee. So if you hear me say the word slave, bondservant, servant, or employee, I'm speaking about the same person in this passage, okay? But this is a very large room and a very diverse room. When we hear that word slave, all of us think of very different things. And I want to do two things here first. When we think of the word slavery, we think of modern, the African slave trade, what's recently happened in our nation's history, That's not the slavery that Paul is referring to here in this passage. He's talking about slavery during the Roman Empire in the first century. So first thing we're going to do is we're going to notice the differences between the two, the differences between slavery in the Roman Empire and the African slave trade. But at the same time, there's some similarities, and we need to identify those as well. So first, what are the differences? Unlike the African slave trade, Roman uh, slavery uh, during their empire was not ethnically or racially based. Uh, if you were a slave or a bond servant in the first century, what likely happened was is you took out a loan that you could not repay. And so since you didn't have any equity or capital, you had to offer yourself as a bond servant to your lender. And sometimes that was you, sometimes that was you and your spouse, or sometimes that was you and your spouse and your children. You did not receive pay for your work. You were just working off a debt. Not ethnically based, not racially based, financially based. That's how slavery during the Roman Empire and and slavery during the African slave trade are different. But we'd be amiss if we didn't also notice the similarities between the two. Although they're separated by thousands of years, there's a lot of similarities. Let me put it succinctly this way. Never was it part of God's design for one human being to be the property of another. That was never God's design. Anybody who tells you different is selling you something. That's what we've done with God's creation. That's how we've manipulated and marred his created order. In his order, in his economy, there's one class of humanity, one class of personhood, one class of image bearer underneath him. There are not classes. We make classes. God doesn't. If you're human... You are fully human. And to be owned by another human being is an unnatural bondage. That was never part of God's design. And that's where the African slave trade, and that's where slavery in Paul's time are very, very similar. These are the people that he is speaking to, people that are in bondage, unnatural bondage with their masters. They're dehumanized. They're subhuman. And these are the people that he addresses. And he addresses their work. He says, despite... Your environment, despite how things are and how difficult they are with your employer, here's how you need to reorient your work. I'm going to summarize it this way. Paul says there's a work that's external and there's a work that's internal. If we reduce work to simply the external, our work will never be worship. We'll always be slaves. We'll never be free to enjoy our work. But if we will make our work internal... That's when work starts to hum. That's when it starts to feel worshipful. So first, what is this external work that Paul talks about? Look with me at verse 22. 
to bondservants, obey everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or people-pleasing. Maybe you've heard this expression before, uh, while the cat's away, the mice play, right? It's this old adage, and you might have done this yesterday or you remember doing it as a child. We've all done it to a degree. When your mom or dad's in the room or when the boss is in town and on your floor, what happens to work productivity? It increases. Why? Because people are watching. And then what happens when mom and dad go downstairs or when the boss leaves on a business trip? Then what happens to work productivity? It begins to decrease. That's what Paul's getting at here in this passage. That's eye service. That's people pleasing. That's reducing work to just accomplishing things for the man or the woman that I'm supposed to do so I can earn my paycheck. At the end of the day, accomplish what the bare minimum of what I'm supposed to accomplish. If we reduce our work to just these externals, our work is never going to be worship. Work has to be internalized. Work has to come from the heart. Notice what he says at the end of verse 22 and the beginning of 23. He says, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. Use that word heart twice. And this this concept here, sincerity of heart, if we were to translate that literally, it means singleness of heart. In other words, where you've been multitasking and for different reasons and for different purposes doing work, now you are working with energy and integrity. You're not people-pleasing anymore. I'm not just doing this so other people will think I'm, I'm working hard. It's actually internal now. I'm going to do good work all the time, regardless of who's watching and regardless of why they're watching and regardless of the reward. That's work from the heart. When we start to do that, then worship start, work starts to feel like worship. It gets back to this old point, this old adage, it's not our public lives that bring us the greatest joy. It's not what we do on the outside that brings us our greatest peace, our most worshipful moments, but it's the private ones. It's our private lives that truly bring us the most joy and happiness and worship. It's the same thing uh, with our work. But how do we do that? Students, young folks, when your parents say, yeah, you did good work, but change your attitude. How do we change our attitudes? The bad news is, is that we cannot. Adults can't change their attitudes. And youth, you cannot change your attitude. So how is our attitude changed? How do we really genuinely work from the heart to where it feels worshipful? Uh, we'll get back to that in the third point. But we need to address the masters in leadership next. So Paul reorients our work, the work of these bond servants. Now he's going to reorient the work of leaders. And he calls them masters in chapter 4, verse 1. And a master is anyone in our context who has Uh, at least one or as many as hundreds or thousands of employees who work directly underneath them. In other words, if other people's livelihood and employment rely upon you, you are a master, you are an employer, and you too are an audience of this passage. And, And just like the last point, we really have to understand our context here because Paul is about to admonish the masters, and he spends a whole paragraph on servants, And he just spends one little sentence on masters, just verse 1. And he calls them to do two things. 
to treat your servants justly and fairly. And don't let the shortness of this sentence or this passage take away just how revolutionary this idea of Paul would have been to this context. Again, this is what one historian argues, is that at this time when when Paul wrote Colossians, half the population were slaves, were bond servants in some form or fashion. That is 60 million people. That's seven zeros after six. 60 million people are bond servants or slaves in this way. One Roman proverb said this, Slaves are living tools, and all slaves are our enemies. And not only did they say that, but they treated their bondservants and their slaves in that way. They were beaten, they were assaulted, they were harassed, they were misused, they were mistreated, and oftentimes, and for no good reason, husbands and wives were split apart, were separated from one another, parents from children, siblings from one another, just out of spite. This was the rule in Rome, not the exception. So here again, Paul's words, masters, to those people under you, treat them justly. Treat them fairly. In other words, if this starts to get into the water supply, and especially if Christian masters start acting this way towards their employees, toward their bond servants, you know what this means for the slave market? You know what this means for the economy? It's done. It's over. There is no more institution of slavery. It's gone. The market is gone. And what that would do economically to a nation is mind-bending. But on top of that, it's not just financially hard for masters to do this. It's socially hard. You start, you'd be the first one to start to treat your, your bondservant justly and fairly. And what's your neighbor going to do? Quit. Because my slaves are watching yours, and you're being kind to them, and now they want me to be kind to them. Don't do that right? Runs the risk of you being ostracized if you're treating your employees kindly, fairly, and justly. It's going to be very, very costly to the masters if they start doing this. It's a revolutionary thought in this context. But Paul gives it. What does it mean? And what does it look like to be just and to be fair? And to be just is to conduct yourself in a way that meets the standards set by God. So the natural question for us is, what are the natural standards that are set by God. We've already mentioned them. There are no classes of human beings, born, unborn, black, white, male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. There are no classes of human beings, just one. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. One class of human being. So if that is your standard as a master, you're going to treat them as you would treat someone in your own family, your, your employees. That's what it means to be, to be just. What does it mean to be fair or to treat your employees fairly? This word is synonymous with equality or fairness. Um, but what it really means is, is to humanize those people who work for you and those people who work under you. You treat employees as people. You invest in their whole life, not just in their productive capabilities at work. So what this means is, let's say, for example, you uh, happen to get some work out of somebody because of a loophole, 
and by law, you don't have to pay that person. But you did. You got a significant amount of work out of them. Legally, you don't have to pay that person. But because of Paul's admonition here, because there's one class of human beings, one class of humanity, what should you do? Even though the law doesn't require it, you pay that person a fair wage. You humanize them. You value them. You treat them justly and fairly. In the same way, if someone comes to you and tells you or discloses to you as a master, an employer, a leader, that there has been harassment in the office to whatever degree and to whatever nature, that means you don't cover it up. That means you don't make it go away. That means you address it. You humanize that person. You value that person. You deal with the issue, regardless of how much it's going to cost you or your company. You treat them justly, and you treat them fairly. That is their admonition. Last point is our audience. Our work has to change. Our leadership has to change. And ultimately, what Paul says here is our audience has to change. And notice this, and maybe you did already. But in this passage, Paul takes very little time to help resolve this issue that's going on right now between masters and servants. Paul doesn't spend very much time horizontally. He spends a lot more time reorienting the master and the servant to their vertical relationship with God. And he tells them both this, that you both have an audience of one. You all have one master, and it's the same master. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, cosmically, that is who you serve. Notice how he says this to the slaves in verse 22 and verse 23 and in verse 24 at the end of each of these verses. It says, bond servants obey in in everything those who are your earthly masters. Last part of verse 22, fearing the Lord. We'll come back to that in a second. The end of verse 23, you are serving the Lord. Verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. Excuse me, I missed the one in 23. It says, as for the Lord and not for men. We often take this passage kind of as, as, as a parable, and we've heard it put this way. Just kind of like pretend your boss is Jesus and work's going to go okay for you. Paul is not trying to be figurative here. He's trying to be literal. He's saying, yes, you may have an earthly master. You may work for an earthly company. Those are all temporary. Ultimately and cosmically, you report to one person. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in authority over everything. That is your one true boss. That is who you work for. That is who you report to. That is your boss. And the way this relationship is supposed to look like is is a relationship of fear. Now, this this concept of fearing the Lord is Old Testament, New Testament. It's everywhere in the Scriptures. What does Paul mean by fear of the Lord? Think less, Friday the 13th, Freddy Krueger. That's not the kind of fear he's talking about. What true biblical fear of the Lord is, is to live in awe and wonder of God. It's to love Him so deeply and so passionately that you fear to dishonor or to grieve this God who you work for, who's brought you into his employment, who's brought you into his family. You fear to grieve him or dishonor him because you love him. That's biblical fear. 
So the question for us is, is who do we fear to displease more? Is it with external work? Do we fear to displease our boss or our companies or the stockholders? If we do, if we reduce work to that, our work's never going to feel worshipful. But if ultimately, if we're serving the Lord, if we report to Him, if if regardless of of what your salary and what your benefits are going to be, if ultimately you're going because of, I'm united with Christ, and because I'm forgiven in Him and brought into His family, I will serve Him first and foremost. That's when work starts to hum and starts to feel like worship. And you might say, well, Jake, that's great and all. Thanks for that. Great truth. But you don't know my work situation. You don't know who I work for. You don't know the climate in which I work. You don't know how many hours I put in and the reward I get, which is nothing. You don't understand. And to that I would say, you're right, I don't. But you know who does? These Romans, these slaves, they get it. They know how that feels. And Paul knows this, and he offers them an encouragement. And so let Paul's words of encouragement to them also encourage you. Listen to what he says in verse 24. Look with me. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, what inheritance is he talking about? Paul is not talking about some earthly salary, some some treasure, gold or silver, that you would be given on this life, in this life and on this earth. No, he is talking about the eternal award, the bliss of the life that is to come, because you are united to Christ. You are one in him. Again, this is this theme we've been talking about. You've been forgiven and brought into his family, given everything up front. What Jesus says, what happens to me is going to happen to you. I died, you died. I rose from the dead, you will rise from the dead. I got a new body, you get a new body. I'm going to be with the Father forever, you're going to be with the Father forever. And then he says this. With your face in his hands, remember, I am the first and the last. All things were created through me, for me, and unto me. I'm the heir of all things. What is mine is yours. And he will withhold no good thing from you. And when that gets all up in you, and when you believe that your inheritance is eternal and already secured, before you even lifted a finger in labor or work, because you are in Christ Jesus, you will inherit everything, every expanse, every galaxy, every molecule we know and see, and even those we don't see, are ours already in Christ Jesus It's okay to stay in the same tax bracket this year as you were last year. Why? Because Christ has given you everything. You can endure at work if conditions aren't ideal. Why? Because you have been given everything in Christ and you will walk this earth again with a new body. Everything that's his, he gives to you. And that's what changes our heart. That's what changes our attitude. Why can we endure Why could these slaves endure? Because of this inheritance they have in Christ Jesus. That's our hope too. So slaves need to reorient their audience. They have an audience of one, which is God, but so do masters. He tells them in chapter 4, verse 1, look back at the text with me, that second part after the comma. It says, Masters, 
knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I imagine whoever was reading this, this passage to the Colossians, if they had glasses back then, the glasses got moved down to the end of their nose and they said, you understand what this means, don't you, masters? You may be on the Forbes list, you may be a Fortune 500 company, but guess what? You're a slave too. You're a bondservant. You too have an audience of one. Yes, you may be successful. Yes, you may have more cash than you know what to do with, but guess what? If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you too have an audience of just one. And that is the Lord and creator of everything. Seen and unseen. Jesus Christ. And just as masters are called to treat their employees justly and fairly, masters, is, not, is that not exactly how God, who is your master, treated you? Did he not treat you justly? It's hard for us as masters uh, to remember this. We often forget it, but for all of our hypocrisies, our idols, our arrogancies, our misuse, and our dehumanizing of other people, God says, that's got to be paid for somehow. My anger and my wrath is not just going to dissipate and disappear. That anger needs to go somewhere. And what Jesus says is, is the wrath that is due you, he will take upon himself, willingly, knowingly. So what you deserve for the way you've treated other people, Christ says, I'm going to take that upon myself. Justice will be done, not on you, on me, so that you can be forgiven. Jesus says to us masters, I will be treated unfairly. I will be treated unjustly. I will be judged by human court. Why? So that you could be treated like a king and a queen in creation. Don't forget that. For you, masters, he was treated like a slave so that you could be treated like a son or a daughter. He was fair to you. He was just to you. Why? So when we would find ourselves in leadership over other people, when we find ourselves in, in power and authority, we can treat those people who are under us those people who work with us and for us with justice and with fairness. We can treat them the way God has treated us. That's how masters bear God's image in the workplace. And when masters start to do this, when employees are humanized, when justice and fairness begins to rule and become the water supply, you know what happens, masters? Our work, our work starts to feel like worship Again, it doesn't feel like work anymore. It's not drudgery. We're not slaves to the bottom line. We're not slaves to shareholders. We're not slaves to our work anymore. We're finally freed to work. We're finally freed to serve God by serving those people he's put under us. This is his design. Masters, you have an audience of one. No more and no less. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, this morning, um, I don't know what you have heard about the Lord Jesus Christ or what your impressions of him may or might be. But what I suggest that the scriptures teach in this passage is that Jesus Christ, whom we've mentioned in this sermon, is both to the church. Her perfect master, 
and her perfect servant. What Jesus offers us in this gospel is this invitation. We can do nothing with our dirtiness, with our brokenness, with our guilt and our shame, but he can. He can wash you whiter than snow. That's him being just. And that's him being fair. That's him giving us what we do not deserve. And at the same time, his demands are high. Be perfect as I am perfect. Nobody in this room can do that. But you know what he gives? Because he's a good master. Because he's king and head of the church. He says, you have no goodness to offer, so I'm going to gift you mine. And so it's as if we wear these white robes that Jesus wore. Jesus lived for 33 years this perfect life. Why? So that we could wear his righteousness on our outside. So we could get credit for all of his goodness. We can't do that. God has to give that to us. That's what good masters do. That's not the end of the good news. Not only is he the perfect master, just, fair, but he's also a servant. Isaiah calls him the suffering servant. In Jesus' own words, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. He is the church's great servant. He hasn't traded in his white collar, or excuse me, hasn't traded in his blue collar for a white collar. For 33 years, he walked this earth. He knows what it's like to be a human being. He knows what it's like to suffer temptation. So that when you get to that point in your life where you're going, life is hard, work is not making sense. This feels all messed up. It's chaotic. There's discord everywhere. I don't know what to do. Jesus can sit across the table from you and nod his head and go, I know how that feels. And that's not lip service. He literally walked a mile in our shoes. Why? So that we could have a righteousness we could not earn. So that we could have forgiveness that we could not earn. He gives it to us. And sometimes I wonder if, if Christianity feels like an invitation from HR, you find that there's a job out there, and so you put your best clothes on, present best foot forward, you get the application filled out, your resume ready, and you walk into HR, and you make a splash, you, know, you try, to, try to be remembered. Friends, that's not Christianity. That's not how the gospel works. Here's how the gospel works. Imagine if you were unemployed, and you were in desperate need of a job, And Arthur Guinness walked in the room and said, do you want a job? After what we just heard, we would say, "Uh, yes, and I can start today. Show me where to sign. Why would we do that? It's because what he created wasn't work. It was life. It was the way things are supposed to be. Jesus is not like a passive HR department in a company. You know, kind of put on your best foot forward and we'll... We'll kind of see and wait and see how, you know, the, the pool kind of pans out. No, Jesus is more like a headhunter. And you're very hearing this morning. He is approaching you whether you believe it or not. He is presenting himself saying, I want you. You've got nothing to present. But he does. You can't do anything with your guilt or shame, but he can. You can't offer a righteousness, but he can offer you one. He wants you to be a part of this company, this kingdom, this culture that he is transforming and turning this world into. That's the invitation of Christianity. Has it it ever been presented that way? He wants you. 
He's a perfect master, but he's also a perfect servant. Who better to work for than that, right? Maybe you'll consider that this morning. All you have to do is believe. Let's pray together. Our great Father, thank you for being what we could not be. Your justice to us and your fairness over us. We get glimpses of. There's so much more that we can't even see or comprehend. But we thank you for that. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who willingly gave himself to cleanse us from our sins, to give us a goodness that we could not attain in and of ourselves. Thank you for this great gift. Would you help it to turn our work into true worship of you? Would you get the glory? Would you get the praise? Would you help us to endure until the inheritance is fully received? And we ask this all in Christ our brother's name. Amen.